Though I have not read the book, something I encountered this week pointed me to it. A book called The World Without Us by Alan Weissman. Has anybody read this? No? Okay. It's reportedly a book about exactly what the title evokes, The World After Humankind. How long it would take for the asphalt and concrete to crack, how well all those animals that we've bred to live with us would fare after we're gone, and in a place like Manhattan, how the weeds and the successional trees and cats would take over. Dogs, it turns out, have tied their fate to ours. So, oopsie. If I stay academic about all this, it is fascinating to me. In his book, reportedly, Weissman describes the distinct ways that organically and chemically treated farms would revert to wild, how billions more birds, birds we don't even know of, would flourish, and how cockroaches in unheated cities would perish without us. What? Didn't we all think cockroaches were going to be the last to survive? Apparently not. So if I say academic about this, it's super fascinating to me, and I'm actually intrigued to read the book. Just reading the snippets about it and reviews of others who have read it is very fascinating. If I get a little more prophetic about it, a world without us seems inevitable and kind of right. As one writer commented, I like to entertain such ideas of a city overgrown with weeds, of the industrial countryside reforested. Not because I'm a misanthrope, but because I like the idea of a reset. Our way of being on this earth is far from sustainable. That's not news to anyone, I'm sure, in this room. And is indeed tempting to imagine the flourishing that might come were we to give everything, cities, towns, countrysides, a fresh start, new life from the rewilding of our earth. And I don't think it's controversial, though you can tell me later if I'm wrong, to say that we as humans are the earth's number one pest. Uh, that it may just need to rid itself of in order for its own survival. So I get a little more sort of prophetic about it. It feels sort of inevitable and maybe even right. But if I sink to an emotional place, it feels devastating, terrifying, Sorrowful beyond words, especially as I think about my younger beloveds, the ones whom I love, who are who have a lot more years ahead of them on this earth. So, if I take a sideways step from imagining sort of the big apocalyptic reset of a world without us, I do know that sometimes a problem is so big it needs a complete reset. Sometimes the new can only come in the rubble of the old. Sometimes systems, like all the big bad isms of our day, uh, and very specifically one that we have been centering in our congregational life, white supremacy, sometimes those things need to be wholly dismantled, not just tweaked here and there in minor ways, but wholly brought to the ground 
in order for something more just and joyous to emerge or to grow or to be created or built, sometimes the cultivated, the system, the built system, needs to be rewilded before new life will sprout and grow. Now, I want to take us to our reading. The first part of our reading from Isaiah this morning is a love song. And its original hearers would have recognized the genre of love ballad. Let me now sing of my beloved. It is a love song about a vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. My beloved dug the soil, did all these things, and my beloved anticipated the crop of grapes. It echoes the passion of the Song of Songs, the place I would always turn as a kid in my Bible to read scandalous things in church. It calls to mind vineyard frolicking and garden trysts. But then the love song's lyrics take a turn for the judgy, divine judgment, that is, and it would have caught its original hearers off guard because the genre, the love ballad, was so very clear and so very obvious, but then the words kind of don't match. It's something like, um, as I was trying to think about it this week, I was imagining sort of a brassy, majestic march um, with lyrics of lament, maybe something like, I am so sorrowful, I am so sad. (laughs) Just would have been a little startling. (laughs) A little attention-grabbing certainly on the part of Isaiah, and perplexing. What is happening here? The words are not matching the music. And though Isaiah's context is different from Hosea's context, who was our prophet from last week, and certainly different from our own context, there is a similar prophetic thrust in Isaiah and Hosea, a similar prophetic thrust from God, a deep, impenetrable love for the people and a devastating sorrow at their propensity toward injustice and causing suffering to others of God's beloveds. So that's why you get the words that don't match the music, because they're both true. The love ballad is true, and the lament is true. I saw uh, the theatrical production of Dracula at ACT, a couple of weeks ago. And because I was looking ahead toward Hosea and Isaiah and the theme of the people's betrayal, I snagged on a line that might otherwise have passed me by, less noticed, and I've been chewing on it ever since. <laughs> Dracula chewing. <laughs> One of the characters uh, said that betrayal is the willful slaughter of hope. Betrayal is the willful slaughter of hope. Yeah, you're welcome. Now you're probably going to be chewing on it for weeks. I've been thinking about this. Is this true, and how does it apply or not? So I've been thinking about it. When the people betray God, whether in Hosea's time or Isaiah's time or our time, it is perhaps sometimes a willful attempt to slaughter God's hope in humanity. 
Other times, many times, maybe even most times, I'm not sure it's willful at all. But still, might our betrayal be an unconscious or an unintentional attempt to slaughter God's hope in us? That's violent language. It's fitting for Dracula, of course. But like I said, I just haven't been able to shake it and wonder what's what's in there, if anything. Perhaps in part because of God's response to the face in the face of the people's betrayal. That's maybe why I'm chewing on it. As Isaiah builds toward chapter 11, so our reading this morning was taken from two chapters kind of squished together. So the second part of our reading comes from just later in Isaiah's prophecy. And as it builds toward that, what we learn is that God's hope for the people will not be slaughtered, whether by willful or unintentional attempt on the part of the people. It is God's very nature, according to Isaiah's prophecy, to stubbornly cling to hope, to claim the people, to embody fierce faithfulness, to sprout a tender green shoot of new life. That is God's very nature of stubborn hope in us and for us, despite us. Thanks be to God. Now because this second part of our reading, the shoot sprouting from the stump of Jesse, so often accompanies our Advent worship, we as Christians can hardly hear it without hearing Jesus. Oh, there sprouts Jesus. Jesus is a sprout. And that is true for us. The divine word becoming flesh in the coming of Jesus is one of our most powerful proclamations. It is a central proclamation of God's stubborn hope in us and for us, despite us. And because Isaiah is part of the Hebrew Bible, it is one of our Hebrew scriptures, it also bears explicitly naming that in Judaism, this prophecy of God's stubborn hope for the people, in and for the people, is most beautifully and powerfully manifest in God's enduring faithfulness to the covenant. So manifest differently. The good news for all of us who claim this text as our own is that God is about sprouting a tender shoot of new life from the rewilded places in our lives and in our life together. And I got an actual physical glimpse of that tender shoot when I was on sabbatical. As I mentioned last week, we spent one of those weeks Uh, up at Holden Village, which, as many of you know, up in the Cascades on Lake Chelan. It's a Lutheran retreat center. Hey, Lutherans, welcome! (laughs) Everybody love Holden? Yeah. Yeah. Um, As many of you know, Holden experienced a fire in 2015. The Wolverine Fire came perilously close to the village and came all around it. And I've only been to Holden Village twice in my life, The first time was 10 years ago, and the landscape looks very different than it did 10 years ago. It's more, uh, especially on the drive up, uh, it's open and it's charred. You can see it on the trees. It's felled. 
And four years later, absolutely bursting with tender green shoots. Bursting all over. Tender green shoots that are growing heartier and stronger with each passing day. And the sight is no understatement, miraculous and breathtaking. No wonder Isaiah chose precisely this image to describe God's faithfulness to God's promise never again to burn it all down or flood it all out. No wonder Isaiah chose this image to evoke God's commitment to rewilding and renewing life again and again and again. No wonder Isaiah chose this image to symbolize God's stubborn hope in the people, for the people, despite the people. (laughs) No wonder. Justice will be the belt around our waist and faithfulness will gird us up. Amen, and thanks be to God.